This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith and the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your cohorts or the Catholic Medical Association. Today, our guest will be Dr. Paul Camerata, a Kansas City neurosurgeon, actually chief of neurosurgery at KU Medical Center. He's going to talk to us about the relationship between the mind and the brain, or the soul and the brain. You know, is the mind part of the brain? Does the brain use the mind, or does the mind use the brain? The neurosurgeon would be the one to tell us about that. So I'm excited to hear from him. But first, let's look at some of the recent medical news. And instead of our typical news approach, what I thought would be interesting to do today is take some information from a previous guest on the show, Dr. Pete Colosi, a philosopher. And he sent me this article, which I thought would be a great way to set up the interview with Dr. Camerata. And that is something he wrote just a few months ago in autumn 2018 in the National Catholic Bioethics Center quarterly called Discussing the Soul or the Spiritual Soul in the Classroom. Now, I I thought that wasn't allowed anymore. Well, he does it at Salve Regina University there in Providence, Rhode Island. And in the article he wrote, he says there needs to be more collaboration between neuroscientists, that's brain researchers, and philosophers uh, to co-author papers challenging materialist assumptions. That, you know, in reviewing his article, I found it very fascinating because I'd never really thought about kind of the the camps they find themselves in, but I I have a feeling they don't cross at a lot of dinner parties because Uh, they treat each other kind of like they're in separate boxes almost. Oh, philosophers and brain researchers. Yeah. Yes. And really, they have a lot to share. And it's fascinating that when I met Dr. Camerata, and I know he's had a podcast of his own, uh, I asked him what would be a good topic to talk to you about because he knows so much. And this was the first thing that came to mind, the, the mind and the brain or the soul and the brain. And he said it's very common for neurosurgeons to research this topic later in their careers. So I can't wait to hear oh, why, interesting. why that is so common, what it is they experience that leads them to not be materialists, to not think all we see, feel, taste, and touch is all there is. You know, remember, oh, no, you were too young to remember, Carl Sagan back in the late 70s. You know, he used to, in his book and TV series Cosmos, he said the universe is all that there is, all that there was, all that there ever will be. You know, the the great materialist mantra. Gee whiz. That sets you up for a lot of assumptions throughout your daily life, not only with your health, but just behavior and everything. Oh, yes. And I love G.K. Chesterton's retort. He said the universe was just God's toy. (laughs) (laughs) So in this article that Dr. Colosi wrote, he gives um, examples of how he gets students, and we consider our listeners to kind of be in a classroom with us, uh, hopefully learning both with us and maybe even occasionally, if we're lucky, learning from us. But he uses a story, first of all, of a young man named Martin Pistorius. Martin had something called locked-in syndrome, and it's actually in a book that he later wrote called Ghost Boy. Have you ever... Heard of this syndrome, Andrew? I've I've heard of it. Usually, uh, as it's in a TV show or something, it's it's given as an example. I've never seen a patient with it, but I've definitely heard about it. Or maybe we have seen a patient with them. We just didn't and know we they didn't were locked in. And, and basically, what's going on in these patients is they are completely aware of everything going on around them, but they have no ability to control their bodies. That's so scary. It's very scary. That's why he called the book Ghost Boy, and he talks in the book about how there were, while he had many kind and gentle caregivers, he had many who verbally, physically, and intimately abused him in very different ways, including making him swallow his own vomit, or he would get abused physically even more. See, that's so sad to hear. I mean, and, you know, not so direct, but I, I do think of people like when you see you see patients, either patients with severe disabilities or people who are in the ICU and they're clearly not as conscious as we are, apparently, it, it would appear that way. You know, people sometimes treat them as though they're not there. 
Exactly. But they are a person just as much as you and I are persons. So Dr. Colosi uses the example of Martin Pistorius, the, the ghost boy, to contrast a perfectly sound interior life. When Martin said he felt particularly close to God, even though his family was not religious. That's interesting. So a, a perfectly functioning interior life with a barely functioning physical life. And yet... The way he was abused was through his body. Wow. And yet he experienced it in his soul. So the discrepancy between the functioning soul and the barely working body says uh, that the students in Dr. Close's class start to become aware that, yeah, maybe there is a difference between the physical and a non-physical part of us. Man, well, and, and you think about it that way, the, the body can't get offended, you know, but you as a person can be offended by something. Right. You know. Well, and, and then the next example he gives is that there's uh, a, a two different ways to become sad. Okay. One way to become sad is a story of a neurosurgeon, Paul Kalanithi, uh, who wrote a book called When Breath Becomes Air. He actually dies at a young age of cancer and writes about it up until almost the day he dies. But he talks about one time when he's doing brain surgery on an awake patient. And I know that Dr. Kamrad is going to talk about this. But so they've got the brain exposed and they're touching different parts of the brain with electrodes, asking the patient what they're experiencing. And it doesn't hurt because there's no pain sensors on the, on the brain. Exactly. There are none. So in this example, in this book, When Breath Becomes Air, he talks about a patient when he was touching an electrode to a certain area of the brain. It's like, oh, doctor, I feel, I feel so horribly sad. And they take the electrode off. Oh, I feel good now. And he touches the electrode. Oh, I just feel, I feel very sad. And mm. then there's the other example of sadness. And it's a book that I read when I was in medical school. Great book, highly recommended by a man named Viktor Frankl, psychiatrist who survived multiple uh, concentration camps in World War II. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he tells a story of an elderly general practitioner that came in to see him because he was very depressed, very sad because he'd lost his wife. And Dr. Frankl says to his patient, doctor, how would it have been for your wife, if you had died first, oh, how greatly she would have suffered. It would have been unbearable for her. We did everything together. And Dr. Frankel says, see, you have saved her from that suffering at the very great cost of suffering it yourself. And a light went on in his eyes. He turned toward Dr. Frankel, shook his hand, and he walked out. His sadness was partially relieved. But it wasn't relieved by moving an electrode. It was relieved by experiencing his wife's death through a different lens, through different ideas. So one cause of sadness was the electrode. It was physical. But the other cause of relieving the sadness was not removing an electrode from the brain. It was from experiencing something as a person. So two very different causes of sadness here. You know, it's, it is incredible to think about, and I think that's one of the reasons talking about sadness or even medically for depression, and I think our listeners will enjoy our show coming up on that. The thing with depression is there's so many different things that we use to treat it, but they don't all work the same for everybody. No. And it, I think this kind of touches on that is that, you know, sometimes it can be a material problem with part of the brain, not enough neurotransmitters, serotonin, what have you. Other people medicine has no effect. Exactly. You know, and so I, I think it highlights that and it really does point to the mind being different. The mind is different than the brain. In fact, there's something that Dr. Uh, Colosi does with his students and he says, the brain doesn't think. You think. You use your brain to think, but it's you who do the thinking, not the brain. So as an example, he says, oh, well, some people think that all ideas, uh, anything you can come up with are just random electrical chemical discharges in the brain. But Dr. Kalanithi in his book, When Breath Becomes Air, points out that you never touch an electrode somewhere in the brain and all of a, and a sudden you're doing quadratic equations or solving different difficult geometry proofs. Yeah. No, it's nothing ever more than a sensation, an emotion, a simple emotion, or maybe even one of the senses like a smelling something. You or, can't create something new by touching the brain. Right. So there's more going on there. 
So it seems that the mind is using the brain, not that the brain is the mind. So, oh, this is something I, I found. Neuros, a neurosurgeon named Michael Egnor wrote that Thomas Aquinas was way ahead of his time as far as this question goes because Thomas Aquinas said, and this neurosurgeon agrees, that our soul's immaterial powers are only facilitated by matter, not caused by it, and the correlation is loose. He said that Aquinas said that 700-plus years ago. Well, and that, that goes back to the difference between substance and form. Yes. It Getting down to the, the philosophy. Exactly. In, that, in your mind, you can picture what a table is. It might have four legs, might have five or one leg, but you know what a table is. And it can be made up with lots of different things. And then the material, the matter, is the substance. Right. But the form is something totally different and immaterial. Well, we'll see how Dr. Camerata helps us with this. Before our break, I have a brain-related trivia question. The average brain of a human weighs about three pounds, or one and a half to two percent of body weight. But what percentage of the body's energy supplies does the brain use? Ooh. And the second part, bonus question. Compared to the IBM supercomputer Watson that first beat a Jeopardy champion on the Jeopardy TV show, how much energy does a brain require compared to that supercomputer? Which one uses more energy and by how much? We'll be back with Dr. Camerata and the mind-brain question after the break. We're back on Dr. Doctor, and we're going to be approaching the mind-brain problem, or how does the soul communicate with the body? Our guest is Dr. Paul Camerata. He's professor and chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery at the University of Kansas Medical Center. He trained his undergrad at Stanford Medical School at Kansas University and did his residency at the University of Minnesota and then did a further fellowship in cerebrovascular and skull-based surgery. Welcome, Dr. Paul Camerata, to Dr. Doctor. Welcome, doctor and doctor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's not go down that road. So, Paul, in talking to you recently, getting to know you, and asking, you know, there's so many fascinating things a neurosurgeon knows that I'd like to know about. You said the most interesting thing you could think of talking about first was the relationship between the mind and the brain. What is it that stimulates that within you and your fellow neurosurgeons? Well, Tom, it's, you know, it's something that, like, as you say, there are a number of neurosurgeons that have gone down that track and written about it, thought about it. You know, when we, when we see the brain, it is matter. It is, uh, you know, it's biology. It's uh, nerve cells and the supporting cells. But what's intriguing is how the mind comes apart from this uh, bundle of billions of neurons. How do we get consciousness? How do we, uh, do we get the mind in there? And so, um, and, and some of us who have had the grace of being able to operate on, on patients uh, while they're awake, you know, are very intrigued uh, by the whole, the whole concept of the mind and where it is. Uh, you know, there's the, the seat of the soul that uh, people have uh, sought for, for many years. So I guess it's that. It's just the, the thought of, you know, where does it all come from? in this mass of neurons that uh, communicates via electricity and chemicals. So you're looking at this three-pound gray lump and thinking, is that all there is? There, there's yes. got to be more to me <laughs> than that. Is, is that part of it? Yes, that's part of it, exactly. You know, uh, uh, many uh, uh, neuroscientists or scientists, you know, have for uh, centuries tried to figure out, is there a certain place in the brain? Is there a certain structure? Does, does the soul or the mind reside in one place or is it a, a combination of things? And so, uh, you know, it's, I think we're getting, we're getting closer, but in uh, many senses, uh, we're, we're just as far away as, uh, as the Greeks were millennia ago. <laughs> you know, Paul, it's, it's interesting to me that especially you've, you've been doing this for a long time and getting even more interested in this. You know, I'd think of somebody who if you had a job where you repaired air conditioning units or something, after yeah. a while, you've seen it all. You know it all. I mean, <laughs> at, at some point, it's it's old hat, maybe even boring. But it's interesting that this just provokes more questions the more experience you get. Why Why should lay people care about this association or this difference between the brain and the mind? 
Well, because, you know, we're not just, uh, at least I'm of the uh, of the mindset that we're just not a, a bundle of neurons or a bundle of cells, you know, that there is uh, something deeper, deeper there. And, you know, when I first thought about going into neurosurgery in medical school, I chose it because I thought, man, this is a, a vast frontier. There is so much about the nervous system that we do not yet know. And it's still that way, you know, 30 years later. So you thought it would be unquenchable, that there was always going to be something to do. Kind of like your earthly version of the beatific vision. We'll never get tired of, of, <laughs> exactly. of God. Further There's up always and further more. in. Further, oh, very good. I, that was a C.S. Lewis reference to those of you who are unaware <laughs> of it. So, Paul, one of the things we talked about in the first segment of the show was that sadness can actually be provoked by touching the brain in a certain place with an electrode, yet this is different than sadness provoked by an event in somebody's life. What type of things have you seen provoked while doing surgery on awake patients? Well, that's a great question, uh, Tom, and, and uh, all kinds of things. We have uh, seen memories provoked, very specific memories. Mm. Music, someone will hear uh, music. Is it always They're, music they've heard before? Yes, okay. uh, at least in my, uh, in my circumstances okay. when that's happened. And uh, the, the, the most famous neurosurgeon to have done this was a man named Wilder Penfield. Uh, he uh, began this uh, sort of foray into stimulation of the brain in awake patients. And there are even a couple of YouTube videos of him uh, in surgery. Wow. And you see, you see the, uh, the woman saying, well, there's that tune again. It's the same <laughs> tune. And then he, he thinks, okay, well, this is just fortuitous. Uh, and he goes and stimulates another part of the brain. Nothing happens. Another part, nothing happens. And he goes right back to that area. And sure enough, she hears the same tune again. You know, and, and uh, childhood memories, you know, to think that uh, that all of those things, or, or at least many of them, are written somewhere in there, you know, like a recorder that is constantly going, uh, that you could uh, somehow tease all of that out. I think uh, that's amazing. Most of the time, when I'm doing stimulation of the brain now, we're doing it uh, to save speech function or to save language function or understanding uh, or motor function. So, you know, for instance, I will uh, uh, take out a, a brain tumor that is near the expressive speech area, yes. what's called Broca's area, mm -hmm. and, you know, that the tumor may look just like the normal brain, and so oh. I don't want to take out any of that. Wow. And so I'll stimulate an area while the person is talking. I'll say, could you, you know, say your ABCs or say the Our Father or something like that. And they'll say, you know, A, B, C, D, when I start to turn on the, the uh, stimulus, they, they, they can't talk. Wow, or, they'll, incredible. or they'll immediately become mute or something like that. Uh, on another occasion, it was So you don't take the, that part out, right? <laughs> correct. Yes, that is correct. Well, I, I think that highlights, too, that this isn't just a, a fun experiment that we're doing on, on people, but that's the purpose right. of doing it is to preserve the function. Exactly. Another real interesting thing that I've, I think I spoke with Tom about this before is when we're stimulating motor parts of the brain. This uh, gentleman had a tumor near his face part of the brain, and um, I was having him stick his tongue out at the time. And we have a little camera that is focused on the patient. Actually, it's an iPad underneath the drapes. And the, the image or the video of him is broadcast on a giant monitor so that I can see him as I'm talking to him and, and see what's happening. I said, stick your tongue out. I stimulate the brain and I see the tongue, you know, deviates to one side immediately. And I said, did you do that or did I do that? And he goes, you did that. Wow. So, so he is, you know, generally we think of the, of the soul as animating the body as, you know, he is doing this. Well, actually he knew that I was doing it. So as you know, his, he's outside of the, of the brain as it were, his mind. Ah, which brings us into another outside of the brain thing. What is your understanding of near-death experiences where people can see their bodies? Is, is this research yes. robust or is this kind of just fanciful and, and fake news? No, no. I think it is, uh, it is robust. There has been uh, uh, you know, a ton of research on it, books written, and it is just too, in my, you know, in my humble opinion, too many and uh, too exacting 
to, to not be, there be something to it. Dinesh D'Souza uh, wrote a book uh, a number of years ago about uh, out-of-body out of experiences, and I read that, and uh, it's, um, it's, uh, it's quite amazing. I mean, people actually see what was happening. They have repeated what was happening in the operating room, you know, word for word. The book, I believe, is called Life After Death, The Evidence. And you probably know who Dinesh D'Souza is, yes. and, uh, and he is... Uh, He's a very eloquent, uh, great writer, and um, particularly in, in this book, he, he goes through and cites a number of these uh, episodes. So how do we define our terms? What is the mind and what is the soul? Well, so that's that's a real good question. The soul, you know, the Aristotelian terms is the the, uh, the 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 form, and the the brain, I guess, would be the matter. You know, so the the soul gives, and believe me, I'm not a philosopher, and this is uh, so. Don't take everything I say here with a grain of salt. But I mean, uh, what enlivens the body, you know, the, the, is the soul. The the mind, being that uh, concept of the uh, the brain or the thinking, the the awareness that they have and the consciousness of the world and and their experiences. So, so you know. So would the mind be a function of the soul? Because a soul has no parts by definition, so would it be a function? Correct. Okay. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you you could say, you know, where you're secular, that the mind is a function of the brain, you know, and that uh, all these synapses and neurons and can somehow produce, uh, you know, this consciousness, this uh, this uh, part of the of the brain that has no no set location. You know, Paul, when I when I was going through training, especially in medical school. Everybody kind of felt that soul was a four-letter word, all right? <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. And uh, they were right. I hear you. But it's, <laughs> you know, it's interesting to me because when you're stimulating the brain, you can evoke some things and even predictably some things. But could, could you ever, or I'd, I'd suppose that you could never evoke someplace that they would create something new, a new creation or a new song they've never heard before because that would be... A, a prospective action, and that seems to me would be more the realm of the mind. Um, yes, as something more transcendent, and it's not something that you can find in the gray matter. That's correct. Yeah, the the you know it's it's extra cerebral, as it were, and uh, although it is produced by uh, uh, the brain or resides, uh, uh, you know, in large part due to our our cognitive abilities. Um, I had a had a renal uh, professor back in medical school. Uh, uh, who used to claim that the seat of the soul was the kidney. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I, I don't buy that. Oh, uh, man, that's man, but it's that. But it's not the pineal gland either, you know, which is what Descartes uh, thought. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting to me. Do you, do you see among your, your colleagues, I mean, we all work with uh, secular colleagues, do you see them question some of these things as they go on in their career? Especially I the do. materialism uh, yeah. aspect of it, you know, where we, the the thought I, I would say from most materialists I've met is that, oh, well, we just haven't figured it out yet. Just give it time. You yes, know, if we study yes. harder, it's got to be in the genes or it's got to be, you know, CRISPR will fix it or something right. like that. <laughs> yeah. um, but do you, do you ever see them come on to the, the idea that, you know, there might be something separate here. Do most most secular neurosurgeons, would they feel that mind is a legitimate thing to think about? I, I think so. I, uh, you know, in our daily tasks, you know, we tend to, uh, I often tell people I'm a carpenter, you know, I, uh, I'm, I, I don't do a whole lot of independent thinking. I go in and, you know, do my work and, and get out. But, uh, <laughs> you know, at a number of neurosurgeons and neurophysiologists, uh, people that have studied the nervous system, sort of when they when they hang up their, you know, keys at the end of their day job and begin to think about retirement, I think a lot of them have made sort of a second career out of contemplating these things. Even people, I think, who were, you know, avowed secularists. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, about Wilder Penfield's religion, but there was a, a famous Nobel Prize winner named Charles Sherrington uh, who came to the same sort of conclusion. He started studying the mind and the and the soul when he finished. Uh, there was another Nobel Prize winner by the name of John Eccles 
who was a very eminent neuroscientist, uh, who again did the same thing. He, once he uh, he quit uh, doing bench research, he started trying to figure out how can the brain, these neurons, uh, give rise to the mind, and and uh, where could the soul be in all of this? Well, that has been a stimulating discussion that fills our first part of the interview. We're going to take a brief break and we be right back with more on Doctor Doctor. And we're back today talking about the idea of mind versus brain. And, and Paul, one of the questions that I've, I've kind of been trying to think about is this whole notion of consciousness. And it's probably something that, you know, it, it wasn't in the neurosurgery part of my med school training. That was more in psychology or actually not really discussed a whole lot in med school. But yes. how do you see consciousness relating to the brain based on your work? Well, Andrew, consciousness is, you know, in just sort of general parlance, the awareness or the perception of something by a person. In other words, our, our level of alertness, wakefulness, uh, sentience, responsiveness. And we know that there are parts of the brain that when they are injured, you lose consciousness and it doesn't come back and sometimes permanently. But is is consciousness does it come from from only one area or is it that one area that sort of stimulates it i i one of the most interesting uh, studies that i have read within the last few years was uh, in an article in a, it was a very well respected journal i think proceedings of the national academy of sciences and it was studying some people who were felt to be minimally conscious or basically unconscious, people that uh, had suffered brain injuries and um, were unable to to let anyone know that they were conscious if they were. I mean, they were presumed unconscious. They didn't uh, respond to people touching them, to any questions, etc. They were in what we call a coma, or we thought they were. Is this well, different than locked-in syndrome? Uh, so, yes, this okay. is locked in. Locked in, you are unable to respond, but you are conscious, right? So you yes. can somehow, you know, the, the diving bell and the butterfly where he communicated, a French journalist communicated by blinking his eyes. Finally, somebody yes. knew or by moving his eyes, somebody knew he was conscious. Well, these two people, it was just it's just incredible uh, uh, study. They uh, took a number of normal volunteers and showed them a very a short, I think it was a 20-minute uh, Alfred Hitchcock clip of a movie called Bang, You're Dead. You can find it on YouTube. It's literally 20 minutes. You can watch it. It's an unbelievably tense, uh, as Hitchcock's films often were, clip where uh, some young boy has like a revolver and he uh, he actually loads it with a, uh, with a bullet. His dad doesn't know that. He kind of does uh, the Russian roulette thing. He'll walk up to somebody and the music will you know, build and then click and nothing happens. At any rate, they took a, a bunch of normal volunteers and showed them this thing and did fMRI, functional MRI, which for your listeners is a technique where they can study the brain and see what parts are activated uh, at, at what time sequence, you know, in, in the brain on what side, etc. So they got the normal sequence of how things are supposed to be in the brain uh, when normal people watch this clip. And then they took the two people in coma, showed them the same clip, uh, mixed up like uh, nonsense, and uh, there was no pattern to the brain activity on the MRI. And then they showed it to both of the people in normal, as in exactly the same way that they showed it to the volunteers. And one of the people had the exact same brain patterns of all of the normal volunteers. So it was very clear that this man, for, for I think 10 or 15 years, had been presumed to be unconscious and in a coma. It was very clear that this person was listening, seeing, and paying attention to the film. And so that's the persistent vegetative state that Correct. some people call. That really puts things into perspective, too, when you're dealing with with patients or, or folks who appear not to be necessarily exactly. all with it. Exactly. <laughs> Probably a lot of them are. <laughs> so uh, think of how many people. Yeah. A take-home point from this for me, and I've just innately always do done it, is even when a patient can't respond to me, I treat them like they're there just as much as I am there and assume they are. And of from course. what you're telling me, sometimes they really are there in terms of being conscious. 
Yes, yes, indeed. I, you know, I do the same thing, Tom. I, I talk to my patients in coma when I'm in the room talking to the family about next steps, etc. I, I, I t- say to the family, "Can we step outside?" Uh, because you know your, your loved one may be hearing this. I, you know, I, so I don't talk in front of a patient in coma unless I'm very certain that it's something I want them to hear. I'm addressing them or something like that. That's a that's a beautiful thing to do. It's probably a lesson for the people around you, especially if you have trainees around you. In fact, have you ever had trainees under you say, "Why are you doing this, Doctor Camarada?" Yes, yes, I have. Uh, you know, I just think it's it's one of those things. It's a it's a humane thing to do, and uh, and again, you never know. Um, you know, I think of how many people who have you know decisions have been made on the basis of you know, this uh, minimal or, or uh, persistent vegetative state or the presumption of that, you know, when actually they may have been unable to respond adequately and conscious. Man, that's incredible. It, it really brings into light, you know, I, one of the things I always think about is the interaction of faith and medicine, the things that we know by faith and what that leads us to, treating people with respect and everybody being inherently valuable because of the, they're, they're being uh, an image of God, you know, now you see kind of the other side of it is if you start, you know, putting people towards the margins, oh, they're not, they're not all, all there or they can't hear, then you really are doing a huge injustice. And I mean, this, that study just highlights it. Yes. Now, now Paul, when we're talking about consciousness, do animals have consciousness? So, yes, yeah, so, um, you know, animals, uh, obviously, when they're alive, um, have, have consciousness. They, uh, you know, the question is how much self-awareness uh, do they have? Right, that's um, what I was trying to get at. Is there a difference yeah. between consciousness and self-awareness? Yes. Uh, so, and, and there have been experiments on this, I believe, a number of uh, different animal species. And uh, there were uh, a number of years ago, some studies in primates uh, uh, demonstrating that some primates uh, have a self-awareness. And, uh, you know, it was done with uh, animals in enclosures with mirrors, etc. But by and large, most animals, you know, certainly below primates do, do not have a uh, you know, a true self-awareness as uh, as humans do. It's it's interesting to me, and that's where we get kind of into psychology. You know, we we were talking a little bit before before we started the interview with you about how it would be nice if psychologists and neuro researchers interacted more, because this is kind of getting on to you know Aristotle and Aquinas would talk about the the vegetative sure. soul or the the animal soul, animal soul, right. you know, as opposed to the immortal soul that that humans have. And Chesterton, uh, in his book *The Everlasting Man*, he he mm-hmm. talks about you know just the theory of evolution and how far man has come is in this evolution so great in the eyes of of the the enlightened people. Um, but over the same course of time, you know, the finest uh, architecture of beavers making their dam have, <laughs> has never improved, or or the finest yeah. paintings that are done by monkeys, it doesn't get any better. And so right. it, it lends itself to, you know, there is something different there. Paul, what yeah. do, how do most neuroscientists uh, view the, the mind-brain problem? Well... You know, there's a there are varying uh, you know um, views on this, just as there are with anything. And uh, avowed secularists will will simply say that the mind is a um, a creation of the brain itself. All of the neurons working in uh, concert, and uh, you know the uh, chemical and synaptic activity and electrical activity somehow gives rise to. Uh, this uh, overarching concept of the mind. Then there are others who, you know, uh, those who are uh, uh, believe in a sort of a dualism concept that uh, that there's something insubstantial or something non-material, uh, spiritual as you were, that comes from outside that uh, that animates uh, the person, uh, uh, the mind or the soul. Um, that uh, that that helps give consciousness. So, uh, I mean, so far. Uh, the people in the first camp have not proven that, obviously. Right. And I know that, uh, you know, someone else uh, that 
our listeners might be aware of Father Robert Spitzer. He's done a lot oh, of yes. writing on this topic, and he's even been talking about some kind of quantum fields as a way that the soul could communicate with the brain. I honestly have no idea what that means. It sounds like a Star <laughs> Trek episode. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's an incredible intellect. Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, there's an article I came across in actually one of my journals uh, a few months ago, and it was uh, actually by a psychiatrist in a, in a dermatologic surgery journal about how Botox, botulism toxin, injected into the frown lines between the eyebrows can reduce symptoms of depression in patients who are depressed by about 50% in about 60% of the patients with depression. In other words... Uh, who was it? William James, the famous psychiatrist from over 100 years ago. He said, I do not cry because I'm sad. He says, I'm sad because I cry. Well, this seems to be an example of where the body is affecting the mind. Do you think that gives any evidence one way or another for you know the mind being part of the brain or separate from the brain? Yes, I think that uh, you know, for the, the uh, you know, if if somebody is in pain or suffering, or uh, so were these people that got the Botox? Were they uh, did they have headaches or no? It was just done it for was, uh, strictly cosmetic purposes. Really, but wow. they found out later, you know, that those who had diagnosed depression, many of them uh -huh. felt much better, and yeah. whether or not the depression went away had nothing to do with whether or not there were frown lines there at rest or not. Interesting. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So that's, it's independent uh, so, of their physical appearance. Yeah. So so that, uh, well, we know that uh, the brain certainly could be infected or uh, affected by, um, you know, chemicals, uh, obviously, that uh, treatment for anti-depression. Sure. Um, but um, obviously the Botox did not get into the, the bloodstream or, or anything or make it to the brain. It was, uh, that's, right. that's an amazing uh, amazing. They were just study. unable to make the frowning facial expression that was the key oh, thing i see that, that was not... the key thing exactly yeah that it kind of makes you think of nature and nurture you know it sure it does you yeah. make it and then all of a sudden you can't frown anymore and they so feel you have to be sad. happy yeah you <laughs> feel less sad yeah well, paul if if we or our listeners want to explore this topic more what um what resources could you recommend well, I, uh, you know, one of my, uh, uh, the, one of the surgeons that we all look to, uh, I mentioned before, his name was Wilder Penfield. Uh, he wrote a book uh, probably 40, 50 years ago, 40 years ago called The Mystery of the Mind. It's probably free or close to free, uh, you know, uh, now. So The Mystery of the Mind, um, uh, was a, it's a very easy to read book. Um, and, and, you know, I think uh, the book I mentioned earlier from uh, Dinesh D'Souza yes. on uh, life after death, the evidence. Uh, he's an engaging writer. And it's yes, uh, one is. of those you, you just kind of can't put down uh, once you start reading it. Uh, and do you have any last thoughts that you'd like uh, us and our listeners to know? Oh, I think you you guys are doing a fabulous job, and I thank you for your uh, for uh, for what you bring to uh, Catholic Medical Association and uh, Catholicity at large. Well, thanks for being with us, Paul. I think I see a future uh, with you on the show for other brain-related topics. God bless hey, you. Hey, happy to happy to be your go-to guys if you need it. You're thanks, welcome, Paul. Andrew. Yep. We'll be right back with a little more on Doctor Doctor. This is Dr. Doctor returning to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and we have got the long-awaited-for answer to the trivia question. Yes, so th if the human brain weighs about 3 pounds, 2% or less of the body weight, what percent of the body's energy supplies does the brain use? Well, it's fascinating. It's a lot. It's a glutton. It uses over 10 times as much energy as its weight would suggest. It uses 20% of the body's energy. Wow. That's more per pound than any other part of the body. And it splits it up um, in a two-to-one ratio. You know, two-thirds of the energy is for transmitting signals between nerve cells, and the other third is for just staying healthy, keeping those neurons healthy. It's an energy hog compared to other organs, but we need it. But then I asked a second question. How much energy does the human brain use compared to that IBM Watson computer that beat Ken Jennings, the all-time Jeopardy champion? Well, the human brain, and that's doing everything, not just figuring out the answers to trivia question, it does everything with a power of about 12.6 watts, or joules per second for those of you who care. 
Watson required a thousand watts That's for its incredible. ninety computer servers, or almost eighty times as much energy. And Ken Jennings' brain was keeping his him alive and doing a lot of other things besides coming up with answers. All that energy of Watson was just to come up with those answers, doing one very small function of a human brain. It's amazing to think about the efficiency in the design, a- apart from our whole discussion about the the, the mind and the soul. Yes. Even just the efficiency of the mechanics. That's that, It's amazing. That three-pound lump. Well, to talk more about that three-pound lump and what it does for us, we have back on our show previous guest, uh, Sister Marisha Weber. She's uh, trained in psychiatry and neurology, has a master's degree in theology from Notre Dame, and she currently is a director of the Office of Consecrated Life in the Archdiocese of St. Louis, but she has practiced clinical psychiatry for many years of her life. Sister Marisha, thank you for being back with us on Dr. Doctor. Thank you for the invitation. Well, so let's pose why we have you back here. It has to do with potatoes and screen time. So last <laughs> summer, you told us on Dr. Doctor how viewing screens and using them in certain ways on smartphones, TVs, tablets, computers, that these addictions use the same brain pathways as other addictions like alcohol, drugs, pornography. So now this article came out um, in, in January of 2019 suggesting that screen time for kids is no more dangerous than potatoes for their psychological well-being. What in the world does this mean? <laughs> well, it certainly is a catchy title. Yes. <laughs> and it, it seems that, you know, these, this study places doubt on the myriads of studies and scientific research that's demonstrating the ill effects of the overuse of technology, especially in children. Um, it's suggesting that if you wanted, you know, given they've said you can have 600 million possible ways to assess data, you could come up with a variety of positive or negative associations between technology and well-being, or none at all. This gives us a real interesting insight into how complicated it is to process large data sets. However, they're suggesting that other researchers are blaming technology itself, rather than how persons use technology, which is the problem. And when you read the studies, it really talks about the person using the technology. Um, you know, by analogy, alcohol by itself doesn't cause addiction, or opioids, pain meds, don't cause addiction. Right. It's how persons use them, and some persons overuse them and then have some physical, emotional problems on the heels of it. And there's a, uh, one of the latest studies uh, in 2017, the American Psychological Association, their study demonstrated the more a person checked electronic device, the more they described feeling stressed out. And since millennials and iGens checked it most often, they were the most stressed out. Sure. So it's not saying the electronic devices do this. It's the frequency with which they're checking. So it's the behavior with the device well, that's creating And, and, and this something stir. that would be analogous maybe, is like if I'm expecting someone to come to my house and every 30 seconds or a minute I'm checking out the front door to see if they're there, I'll get stressed out doing that and the screen wasn't even involved, but my behavior was. Yes. Now, Sister, what, what is this article really saying? How did they get to this, this conclusion? And, and by the way, this article is in Lancet Human Behavior, the January 14th, 2019 episode. Again, it's coming to this conclusion based on the fact that you can look at things in a variety of ways and looking at data. But if you consult the experience of many parents as well as research, the article says that there, the article does say that there's um, bullying and, um, let's see, not enough sleep can cause um, some negative mental health um, effects. When, when you look at the Kaiser Family Foundation, they're saying that, that teenagers use the um, electronic devices 11 hours a day, and kids who are 8 to 10, 8 hours a day, that's more than anything else than sleep. Now, that use of technology is definitely going to affect their mental health. And bullying, it's increased exponentially with the advent of technology. So if they're getting less sleep and they're playing Fortnite all night, then they're not going to be doing their homework. And, you know, so these are things that make the teenage brain very vulnerable because it's neuroplastic. It still has a lot of changes in growth and development. So, 
So why in this article does it compare the harm of digital te- digital technology to adolescents with the potential harm of potatoes? In fact, it says only less than 1% of how of someone's well-being can be explained by either potatoes or by digital technology. It, it's, it's hard to put it together, to be honest with you. Um, I think what they're suggesting is that there's no harm at all. Um, but, if, you know, Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs? Yes. When did, he, when did he give his children an iPad? How old were they? Never. He <laughs> never gave them an Isn't iPad. Isn't that incredible? He is the founder of this iPad. And when you think of it, Evan Williams, who is the founder of Twitter, when did he give his two young sons an iPad? He bought them hundreds of books. So what do what <laughs> they know about how the technology is being devised? Because it, it, it's intended. Neuroscientists are hired by social media companies such as Facebook, for example, to divine apps so that you keep using. You know, so you want to go back and use and use. So then becomes an association that is overuse and potentially addictive between the device and the person because of how they are um, de- developed. Um, that's the intent. So you keep using. You know, sister, this this makes me think of statistics class <laughs> in medical school, and trying to read through it and the difference between asking a question a priori versus trying to go back and data mine these these huge data sets. I mean, there's so much evidence to the contrary. It's amazing that anybody would come up with a conclusion like the more time you spend, it doesn't affect you that much because you know we've seen so many things and you've you've mentioned in the past to the association especially with depression you know do you i don't understand the connection with the mashed potatoes i usually feel good after mashed potatoes (laughs) (laughs) oh and the i think it's also very interesting that the national institute of health has launched the largest government study to date on the adolescent brain development it's referred to as the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study, ABCD, because they want to follow 12,000 youth ages 9 through 10 into their adult life. So there's, there's something there that they're associating with some negative effect. In fact, the ABCD study has already seen evidence of differences in the MRIs of brains of 4,500 9- to 10-year-olds who were the heaviest users of electronic devices. What kind of changes are they seeing, sister? They're seeing a hyperarousal. They're also seeing some decrease in um, the mass of, of the prefrontal lobe, which is the executive function that tries to, say, a halt to the, the action to continue to seek out the urges to use so um, self-control would be in the frontal, uh, yes. frontal, prefrontal cortex. Exactly. Sister, this actually, exactly. It, it brings a question to my mind about viewing screen time as a reward. A lot of time I've, I, I've heard people, people recommend, you know, if the kid completes their star chart, then maybe they get a half hour of screen time. Are we reinforcing this? <laughs> ah, sadly, yes. It's like saying to an alcoholic, if um, you... You know, stay at dinner with the family, then you're going to be able to have a drink. Man. It's, it's not helpful. Is it something that they're going to be inclined to, you know, want more of? And how, how often do we see, you know, persons in a store where the child has the cell phone because the, the parent is wanting to shop, and then when they pull the cell phone because the cell phone goes off and their wife is calling and saying, you know, don't forget this, and the child just starts screaming because they want the cell phone back. I've I've often thought, sister, just about you know I'm I'm kind of new into medicine. I've I graduated uh, med school. Let's see, six six <laughs> years ago. Um, but everybody talks about what what kind of defines their career in medicine. And for some people, it was the HIV epidemic. Some people, it was the ability to transplant organs or uh, imaging, have an MRI. You know, the whole world of medicine changes. I think mine is actually going to be defined by technology-related depression and anxiety because I, I can't even put a number on it. Maybe maybe a third or half of the people I see on a daily basis, that that is really the crux of it. And, and sometimes it takes us a while to kind of get down to that. But I think we do have kind of a, a crisis of mental health, and it's so directly tied 
to the the use of smartphones as people are getting more and more smartphones people are getting more and more depressed and anxious you know that, that's exactly what they're finding you know they're finding that you know 18 to 24 year olds that 75 percent of them wake up in the night to check their phones because it's there's a buzz there's a message they want to post and then we've never we have a new neurosis called fomo fear of missing out <laughs> and that didn't exist before the cell phone, where a person's post-persona and, you know, having so much fun. But when you, I, I met with these people, and that's not what their life is really like. But since these kids don't get together face-to-face, they don't realize that they also have failures and disappointments. And so it's affecting self-esteem. Yes. And, you know, we also know that once you have a depression, then you're more likely to have a depression later on in life. So these are things that... Um, are are really needing you know to be looked at and and addressed um, because we're we're placing our self worth in the number of likes we get, you know, which is so distant from who we are created for relationship. Sister, real relationship. In our last minute, I guess what what is the antidote? You know, what what do we do? Is there a Benedict option? Are we supposed to just <laughs> you know completely unplug? Or what what do you tell people? I would say the take-home message is that parents still need to monitor their children's media use. But, you know, no one is suggesting otherwise. That fact has not changed. So parents need to create unplugged times and spaces in their home. They need to make sure that electronic devices are not displacing sleep, schoolwork, exercise, mealtime, family time. And there are many families that are having trouble with their kids because they didn't know this. And so there are you no know, technology solutions, and I suggest either Go Circle or Covenant Eyes or Custodio that have been helped because it helps monitor and limit the amount that can be used in various devices. So the bottom line is parents need to still monitor the amount of time kids use their media, and that has not changed. And we do see effects that need to be seriously looked at. Thank you, Um, Sister Marisha. This is a beautiful summary. Unfortunately, it's time to say goodbye for another week. Thank you to all our listeners for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. For more information on the CMA, find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing the relationship between law and morality with a high-powered lawyer, Nick Nikas, the director of the Bioethics Defense Fund. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor or in the Redeemer Radio app.